Hey, it's Leah. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to tell you about this other show called Stuff the British Stole. It's from CBC Podcast and Australia Radio National, and it's got all the story elements I love. It's got colonial theft. It's got museums denying that theft. It's got intrigue. It's got jokes by Australians. Join host Mark Fresnel as he picks one artifact and takes you on the wild, evocative, sometimes funny, and often tragic adventure of how it got to where it is today. Check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. Just a warning, this episode contains strong language and content because history does sometimes. It's 1993. And the CBC radio show, As It Happens, is interviewing a woman named Leilani Muir over her decision to sue the Alberta government for $2.5 million. Ms. Muir, you've had a a long, hard fight so far to try and win some compensation for what what happened to you as a young girl. Was was there any one person or or one incident that made you decide to, to take this on? Well, I'd seen a psychiatrist and I talked to them. When I went home that night, I sat there and did a lot of thinking and decided, hey, I can talk about this and maybe make myself feel better about things. Leilani would be the first person to attempt to sue for what had happened to her when she was 14 at the Provincial Training Institution for people who at the time were defined as mental defectives. You know, they put me down as a, as a moron, and it's in black and white on the papers. Did you understand what was going on and, and what happened? No. They told me they were taking my appendix out. 95% of the women were sterilized in the institution, and the day they did this to me, there were three other girls that had the same thing done. Along with thousands of other people, Leilani Muir was sterilized to prevent her from having children. And it would be her lawsuit that would open the door for hundreds of other people to come forward to tell their stories of being subjected to eugenics policies in Canada. This is The Secret Life of Canada, a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. Hey, Leah. Hey, Phelan. So Leilani Muir was sterilized as part of a eugenics program. And I know eugenics is kind of a way to breed out quote-unquote undesirable traits in people, to weed out specific genetic traits. And I know that it has played out in a lot of ways, in a lot of places. So what are we talking about today? Well, we're going to find out exactly what it is, who was targeted and affected the most by it, and why it had a surge of popularity in Canada. I mean, many notable Canadians were really on board with eugenics. It was a who's who, including Emily Murphy. And Emily Murphy, she was a suffragette and the first female judge in Canada and a member of the Famous Five. Yes. And actually, all of the famous five, the suffragettes, uh, they were big fans of eugenics. Also, Mm -hmm. Tommy Douglas, the founder of healthcare in Canada, he also thought it was a great idea. Those two things seem at odds with each other, in my opinion. Yeah, well, this is what we're going to get into. Like, you know, why why were they big fans of this? Okay, this is already depressing. I'm I'm disappointed in Tommy Douglas right now. Well, you know what? He changed his mind and disavowed it. But I think it's important to understand why someone like the man who was voted the greatest Canadian started out thinking eugenics could be positive and then did a complete 180. 
Okay, well, let's figure it out. Okay, well, it all starts with Charles Darwin. He's a British scientist who is most well-known for the theory of evolution. In the mid-1800s, he wrote the smash hit on the origin of species. Short synopsis is uh, that species adapt over time to survive in their environment, and the ones that are the most successful in doing this survive. Okay, it's a huge book, and honestly, mm-hmm. you know, uh, who, who doesn't have a copy on their bookshelves? I mean, everyone, right? It's <laughs> great. What a fast read, too. Um, mm-hmm. But I lent my copy to a friend and never got it back, so I thought I should talk to someone about it. Well, my name's Megan Davies, and I'm a Canadian historian who's really interested in madness and old age. Dr. Davies explained to me that Charles Darwin's work ended up greatly influencing the man who would coin the term eugenics. Eugenics was first developed by a guy called Francis Galton, who was actually a cousin of Charles Darwin, the less well-known cousin. Oh, they were related? They were, and Francis used Darwin's theory of evolution as a jumping-off point to come up with the notion that society could improve the human race. Why leave things up to nature to decide when we could just do it ourselves? Galton devised the premise for eugenics based on farming and animal breeding techniques. He came up with the idea in the late 19th century that the human race was really this vast breeding stock if you could selectively breed within the human race, you could breed out all the inferiority and just have these really super-duper humans. All of this superhuman talk feels like the beginning of a bad sci-fi movie. I know, it really, really does. Okay, so when was he coming up with all of this? So Galton first wrote about eugenics in 1883 and continued writing about it steadily. He was obsessed with it and even admitted that he would categorize the women he walked past in his day-to-day travels with a good, medium, or bad rating, which is also how Facebook got started, I believe. (laughs) So eugenics was the original social network? Let me just put it this way. After reading about Galton's relationship issues, I'll just say that Jesse Eisenberg would be able to capture him to a T. Okay, then. So how long did it take for eugenics to become widely known? Well, much like Facebook, eugenics didn't take that long to become popular. Uh, By 1901, Galton was really arguing that there should be a national eugenics program in the United Kingdom. Can you do me a favor and read this quote by him? To no nation is a high human breed more necessary than to our own, for we plant all stock all over the world and lay the foundation of the dispositions and capacities of future millions of the human race. Okay, so that sounds scary and nationalistic and ableist and colonial and just all of the bad things. Yeah, it was all of those things. I consider it like a pseudoscience. Think of it as this giant kind of sorting system of worthy, fit people and unfit, kind of unworthy people. It's like a big labeling system. And Galton's eugenics labeling system ignored a couple of crucial things. And he totally overestimated the importance of the gene pool and underestimated the impacts of things like poverty, the social determinants of health. 
Eugenics had a strong start because many people saw it as the answer to societal problems, and it was quickly adopted by countries all over the world. There are two main forms of eugenics, positive and negative. Okay, that's interesting, because when I hear eugenics, I just assume negative. So what are the differences? Well, I mean, when I say positive and negative, it's it's a definition of it. It's not actually mm, okay. good. Do you know what I mean? Okay. But, yeah, yeah, well, positive yeah. eugenics is defined as encouraging people with what are considered to be desired characteristics and genetic traits to have children. So some of the forms of positive eugenics are things like uh, tax incentives uh, or family allowances, that sort of thing. Just have kids, we will support you. And mm. negative eugenics is discouraging people with what are considered to be undesirable characteristics and genetic traits to have children. Negative eugenics involves things like institutionalizing people and segregating people, uh, sterilization, or even euthanasia. All right. So for many, eugenics seemed like a sound and scientific answer to social problems. Yes. When you read about this, many historians will say in the early days, supporters of eugenics were well-meaning and genuinely thought that it would be for the betterment of society. But this is early 19th century England we're talking about. So it came out of this particular time and place for a reason. Right. There's a lot of social anxiety regarding social change, including the influx of immigrants from other parts of the empire and the lessening power of the upper classes due to increased rights for women and lower class people. Yes, it was a moral panic. We've talked a lot about this response on this show. But as a reminder, Phelan, could you please give us a dictionary definition of moral panic? Sure. Moral panic is a movement based on an incorrect or exaggerated perception that some cultural behavior or group of people is dangerously deviant and pose a threat to society's values and interests. And that is why eugenics quickly fell apart, because it wasn't looking at those factors that Dr. Davies mentioned, like poverty. It really focused on problems, you know, disability was a problem, in quotes, I'm using quotes mm. here. Mm -hmm. And if it was an English-speaking country, immigrants who didn't speak English were also a problem. I would like to say that I'm surprised, but I'm not. So what was Canada's stance with all of this? Oh, we were right there side by side with all the other eugenic-loving nations. Uh-huh. I could have guessed that. <laughs> yeah. So laws began being drafted to legalize sterilization and prevent marriages between people who were categorized as unfit. And this was bolstered by a new way of assessing people. We get the first IQ test developed in France uh, by a psychologist. And you get this new label of the most unfit who were called the feeble-minded and IQ tests, especially the early ones, they could be flawed, you know, not really testing intelligence so much as who's familiar with particular social and cultural norms of the elite. And so while some relied on IQ tests to tell them who was, in their words, unfit to breed, other people were put into this category because of their job or standing in society. Okay, like who? Well, for instance, sex workers. One source I found said that in Toronto during this time, something like 60% of sex workers were categorized as feeble-minded, which aligned with the thinking that this supposed feeble-minded group of people were also more fertile than the rest of the population, and that that was a genetic trait. Okay, so they thought that sex workers would have many, many children mm -hmm. who would also grow up to be sex workers and feeble-minded. 
Essentially, yes. That is what okay, happened. Okay, yeah, that makes total sense. Got to stop that or, you know, else generations later you would have a nation exclusively made up of sex workers. Yes, the horror. And and I mean, this idea Exactly. Exactly. But this idea that people like sex workers were unfit to breed also extended to people with mental illness, people living in poverty, people with disabilities, indigenous people, like I said, some immigrants, depending on where they came from. Oh, and also people who were charged with a crime or considered to be criminals. Oh, and also unhoused people. You know, it was okay, just... yeah. So it just sounds like anyone could at one point fall under one of these categories. Yes. And so by the 1920s, there were some key figures in Canada that pushed eugenics to the forefront. Probably the most well known is an Ontario woman called Helen McMurchie. And in 1915, uh, McMurchie was given the position of inspector of the feeble-minded in Ontario. She was a huge eugenicist, and she published a book, and basically was a book that was really pushing for eugenics, uh, sterilization, the dangers of these feeble-minded people wandering around society, reproducing themselves. But it was a big seller. The eugenics book was a bestseller. People loved it. People loved it. And Helen McMurchie had a huge influence on eugenics in Canada. You know, she was one of the first female doctors here, and she's a good example of how white women specifically took up the cause of eugenics. Helen studied infant mortality rates and wanted to rectify the health of mothers and babies. Well, that's something, I guess, like infant and, and maternal mortality rates were high at the time, right? Yeah, they were. But Helen specified she was concerned about it because she felt that the white race was dying out. So, um, you know, Um, yeah, no, (laughs) and they weren't. (laughs) But also specifically, she didn't want married white ladies and their children to die. White single mothers, though, it was, you know, jury was out on them. Seem a little off to me. And also, I think she would hate the TV show Teen Mom. Oh, I I do not think she would watch or she would hate watch, as we say. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But, you know, she said that single mothers in general were having way too many kids and that they were degenerates because of it. Because of her, many of these women had their children taken away from them or were sterilized and put into institutions. And Helen was really inclusive about all of this. It was a single woman of any race or creed. Um And so this established this new surveillance tactic that was implemented by women's groups onto poor and racialized mothers. These groups were essentially given the responsibility of showing up and inspecting women's houses and their child-rearing ability. It was really the start of social monitoring and tracking and this idea that we, you know, we can't control the population unless we know everything about you. And again, this sounds like the morality police. Oh, yeah. The idea was that society was doomed because there were too many people in the cities and industrialization was, you know, bad. And Mm -hmm. as a result, people were becoming less moral. But in reality, this was just an attempt by some upper class people to impose moral standards onto working class people, indigenous people and immigrants as a way of you know, maintaining their power in Canada because their numbers were declining. And, you know, it's all wrapped up in a nice white supremacy bow. 
Right. And other examples of related movements include social gospel, which was about using Christianity to solve the ills of society, temperance, which was restricting the use of alcohol, Mm -hmm. social purity, which was about abolishing prostitution and other sexual activities that were deemed impure. Exactly. All of that great stuff. And eugenics was, you know, really a caught up in all of that. And it was being cemented in Canada by women like Helen McMurchy in the early 1920s. And and so you said she was in Ontario. What was going Mm -hmm. on in the other provinces? I had that same question. So I reached out to the Eugenics Archives, which is an online database and resource. It's a collaboration between some scholars, survivors, and community partners in challenging eugenics. Hi, my name is Erica Dick. I'm a professor of history at the University of Saskatchewan and a Canada Research Chair in the History of Health and Social Justice. Erica told me that eugenics was happening all across Canada at this time. Almost every jurisdiction in Canada considered introducing some form of eugenics, sometimes formally and sometimes informally. And almost every province debated specific laws about sterilization And just because a province didn't make it law didn't mean that they weren't practicing some type of eugenics, like Nova Scotia, for example. So one of my colleagues, Leslie Digden, at um, at St. Mary's University in Nova Scotia, has shown that in the absence of sterilization laws, women of childbearing age were susceptible to being segregated and institutionalized in homes for unwed mothers or in homes for wayward girls, where some of them spent their, their fertile lives. You know, they were released upon menopause, essentially. This is, in fact, a kind of eugenics policy or eugenics-inspired policy, but it doesn't get categorized in the same way. Okay, and from what you understand, why was it put into law in some places and not in others? I mean, it's a good question. One of the ways that Erica tried to explain it was by looking at Saskatchewan. In Saskatchewan, the government actually passed the bill initially to put a Sexual Sterilization Act in place. But the government fell before the bill was enacted into law. Okay, so the government in Saskatchewan changed, and so their eugenics program fell apart? Yeah, and what I learned from Erica is that a lot of eugenics laws and policies came down to which provincial party held power. So that's why in Alberta and B.C. they were able to formally pass a law called the Sexual Sterilization Act. We know the most about Alberta because they kept better records, but some of the ones in B.C. were either destroyed or not recorded at all. But Alberta's programs were the strongest. Okay, and why was that? The province of Alberta had a strong government in which both the party in power and the opposition party agreed to support the act. So even when the government changed, the law stayed in place. Okay, so who was put in charge of making these decisions? Well, it was a group of people called the Eugenics Board. Here's a clip from CBC Radio in 1975 with researcher and historian Tim Christian, who explains more. Was it called a Eugenics Board? Yes. The whole time? Yes. Oh, it must have been embarrassing to serve on it. Quite amazing, quite amazing. How many people are you talking about, Tim, over the years? Well, approximately 4,400 were presented to the board. And how many sterilized? Some 2,500 were actually sterilized. The people who were sterilized uh, tended to be uh, female, young, uh, of minority ethnic background rather than uh, members of the, of the, don- the dominant culture in the province. Um, they tended to be unemployed rather than employed. 
You made the point well that there was a bias against Eastern Europeans and, and mm -hmm. Indians. And, uh, and so what about representation on the board? Were they ever represented in they deciding who got sterilized? They were WASP as a rule. The board members? Yes. The Sexual Sterilization Act was passed in Alberta in 1928 and then in B.C. a couple years after, in 1933. That was the same year a young Tommy Douglas finished his master's thesis called The Problems of the Subnormal Family. Just going to say that's not a great title. <laughs> it's not a great title. It's not a great title, Tommy Douglas. No. The paper documented 12 women and researched three generations of their families and, you know, the problems that they had and the social support systems that they had or didn't have. In one section, he argues sterilization could be used as an option for people who were, quote unquote, mentally defective or incurably diseased. Okay, that's awful. But from everything that I've learned so far, it seems like it was the common opinion of the time. Yeah, like I said, eugenics had a lot of support in the early 1920s and 1930s, but a shift was coming. Tommy Douglas and many others around the world were about to change their opinion around eugenics, all courtesy of Hitler's Nazi regime. I just wanted to take a break to tell you about another CBC podcast I think you might like. It's called Death in Cryptoland. It's a true story about a crypto tycoon, his secret past, his sudden demise, and an online sleuth's obsession to unravel the truth behind his mysterious company. You can check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen. The Nazi party came to power in 1933 with the core belief that the Aryan race was a superior one, which meant others, particularly Jewish people, were inferior. Yes, they were big into categories and ordering, so eugenics was the perfect system for Nazis. But it wouldn't be until World War II, when the horrors of the Holocaust were revealed, that people around the world learned how the Nazis were practicing eugenics on a widespread scale and for a really long time. For those that died day after day, new batches arrived to fill the empty spaces. Many were arrested because their religion didn't please the Nazis. Many because their race was declared inferior. But no matter what the excuse, the purpose of all the concentration camps of the Nazis was the same. Physical extermination of the enemies of the Greater Reich. In terms of eugenics in Germany, there were a number of programs designed both to test the idea of positive eugenics, that is, kind of better breeding policies, if you will. At the same time, there are forcible sterilizations beginning to take place in psychiatric facilities in Germany and really moving to a scale that is unimaginable in other contexts. So when people learn this, eugenics fell out of favor? Yes and no. I mean, Tommy Douglas completely changed his mind about it and disavowed eugenics. When he became premier of Saskatchewan in 1944, he rejected any suggestion of a eugenic policy. His government recommended therapy for people with mental illness and vocational training for those with intellectual disabilities. But eugenics was still happening in Canada. Despite there being international attention, and a lot of media attention on the atrocities, the horrific atrocities that occurred under the Nazis. A number of jurisdictions continue suggesting that what they're doing 
is not governed or guided by ideological concerns, but what they're doing is truly improving society, or so they justify. So places like Alberta and British Columbia continue their eugenics programs into the early 1970s. Other places, a number of jurisdictions in the United States as well, continue those programs and indeed sometimes streamline them. This was going on into the 70s? Yes, for approximately 45 years. And in 1937, really at the you know start of the law being put into place, Alberta removed the need for informed consent. Meaning that they could do things like sterilize you without telling you? That's right. And that's exactly what happened to Leilani Muir. In 1955, she was left at the Michener Center in Red Deer by her abusive mother. It was called a provincial training school. But it, it wasn't a school, was it? No. It was an institution for people with mental and physical disabilities. Here is Leilani describing what it was like when she arrived there. So y- your mother took you to the provincial training school when you were only 11 years old. Yes, ma'am. And on the first day you got there, uh, did they give you some kind of a test? Uh, Did they sort of try and and see what your IQ was? Uh, You know, that's something I don't remember any test. I remember being dropped at the steps, a nurse meeting me at the bottom of the steps, I didn't even see the car drive away. I don't even remember the drive to the institution. Um, And I don't remember talking to anybody. Of course, you know, I was always locked up at home, so everything was strange to me. And when you're being put in a strange place, it's all new to you. And I just uh, followed the nurses around. A lot of researchers and historians think that places like the Michener Center effectively segregated their residents from society, and they tended to operate under a veil of secrecy. Many people who live there never saw their families again, and others never got out. So the public didn't really know what was going on then? I mean, sterilization was law. And I think people and children like Leilani who were there were basically out of sight out of mind. But, you know, there was this big concern from the public as to how expensive these places were to run. Increasingly, patients or subjects or residents of those places become part of their own economy. So they're making their own meals and not in a way to like teach people how to make meals. I mean, they are part of cooking and cleaning and um, gardening and producing food and goods for these institutions so that the governments can continually cut budgets or keep them low. This is exactly what we heard was going on at residential schools. You know, the kids would be forced to keep the place running, not only to cut costs, but to profit. Exactly. I thought of that, too. There's a walking tour um, around the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto uh, that calls this practice unpaid patient labor, work as therapy, work as treatment. And I've always found the similarities between residential school and Mm -hmm. these institutions really striking. Yeah, it really, really stuck out to me, too, as I was reading some of this. And, you know, the conditions were horrible. Here's another eugenic survivor named Judy Litton, who was taken to the provincial training school when she was seven. At the age of nine, we were made to deliver trays to the different wards, scrub floors, feed people. We had to feed people. Um, We had to 
take the people into the, into the dining room, tie them to the benches, because they had sleeves on with ties on the back. We had to tie them to the benches and feed them breakfast, dinner, and supper. That is so disturbing. And like, you just have to wonder how these people slept at night, the people who are running these places. I know. I know. I, I, you know, yeah. This, this interview in particular with Judy was one of many that the eugenics archive recorded so they could document people's experiences. We've relied on oral interviews. For some of the men and women we worked with through the eugenics archive project, they had never seen their own medical records. They did not know what was described about them as they were chosen uh, for sterilization. And their stories differ. Some of them guessed that they had been sterilized. They anticipated it. They talked to their friends and their and their fellow inmates. And others didn't know until they tried to have families of their own after they left the institution. And that's what happened in Leilani Muir's case. In 1965, when she was 21 years old, she left the institution. She got married. And it was only when she and her husband couldn't conceive that she found out she had been sterilized. She had been told at the time that she had had her appendix removed, and they did take it, along with her fallopian tubes. Later on, she and her husband decided to adopt and were chosen by a young mother out of nine other potential couples. I had everything, bassinet, cribs, 12 dozen diapers, cloth diapers, because <laughs> I don't like disposable. I had everything. And uh, social worker come in, she said, your adoption has fallen through. My husband then, at that time, didn't even wait to listen to anything else. He just took off. So I asked her after he had gone, why? Because we were chosen by this young girl. And if she didn't know us, she wouldn't have given us that chance to have a baby. And she said, um, It, we just went through all your files that you had given us. That you had a mark against you. You were in an institution. You were in the files, in the papers there. You would not be a fit mother. And I'm thinking, you, I don't usually swear, but I'm going to say it, you bitch. You don't know me. And you come and you hurt me like this. After she left the house, I took everything I bought. There was about a few thousand dollars worth of stuff that I had bought for the baby. I took it outside, put it in a burn barrel and burned it all. Smashed everything. So it was a continuation of the eugenics policies having a hand in controlling her life. Yeah, controlling her life, controlling her family. And like we talked about off the top, this was happening to thousands of people in Alberta, as well as across the country, especially against Indigenous women. Yes, and we know that Indigenous women were forcibly sterilized, not only under the B.C. and Alberta's Sexual Sterilization Act, but under other government policies as well. At one point, Indigenous people represented about 2.5% of the population, but made up 25% of those who were sterilized. 
Yes, and although compulsory sterilization laws were repealed in 1973, the system continued on and on. And what we found is that when they legalized contraception and abortion and homosexuality all in the same bill, um, you know, praised as this, you know, moment of liberty and choice for everyone. And what we found is that actually there's quite a heavy surveillance placed on people who had already been targets of these other systems. You know, the strongest efforts in Canada were in the northern parts of Canada. And what we found is that there were pilot programs in the Northwest Territories and even um, around the Arctic Circle where communities were uh, experimented on with different birth control technologies, both Depo-Provera, the long-acting hormone shot, and IUDs, as well as sterilization practices um, already before it was made legal. Oh, my God. I know. And a lot of this, you know, just came down to budgets. The people overseeing this were budget people. Counting how much does it cost to extend Medicare, which was rolling out at this time, to the north? How much does it cost to have a family physician in a Callowit versus how much does it cost for 140 sterilizations? There was a phrase that they used of like, you know, we, we can't feed people. That's way too expensive, right? But we can cut. We can cut tubes. All of this information is from a book Erica co-wrote with Maureen Lux called Challenging Choices. And what the records and documents show is Indigenous women's reproductive choices were always being controlled by the system. Right. And even now, the fight is really about women from the north not having to fly south to have their babies out of their communities and alone. Exactly. And there's one example from the book um, that... I want to mention it it showed that when indigenous communities in BC raised concerns about inadequate and overcrowded housing the bureaucrat in charge looked at it and identified a lack of family planning uh as the problem it wasn't that they didn't have enough houses it was just that they couldn't control their families you know right of course the very convenient narrative and the kicker of that story is that then when they when this guy went to try and get family planning information for these communities, uh, his boss said, oh, no, that's too uh, sensitive to discuss openly. Like people shouldn't have that information. So it's like, which one is it then? Yeah, you know? exactly. And like if you wanted to like get some advice from your doctor or medical expertise, you'd have to like slip them a note or whisper it to them. Yeah, it was very, it had to be very covert. And that's just one example, literally out of thousands of just Mm -hmm. arbitrary, you know, controlling Indigenous families and controlling Indigenous women. And again, we are still hearing about Indigenous women having their children taken away by social services and that they have been sterilized as recently as 2017. Calls are growing louder for a public inquiry into allegations of coerced sterilization of Indigenous women. There's a long and gruesome history of this practice in Canada, but a new class action lawsuit alleges it happened as recently as last year. A social worker came in and she that's when she told me, we want you to have a tubal ligation. And I, and I, I didn't want it and I told her no. And then that's when she's like, well, we don't want you leaving this hospital until it's done. That's Brenda Peely, who said that she was harassed by nurses to sign a consent form only moments after she gave birth. Other women said that they were lied to and told that the sterilization process could be reversed. 
It's so shocking. And, you know, the only reason we know about this is because of those Indigenous women that have come forward and disability activists and the survivors who are bringing these stories to the forefront. In Leilani Muir's case, in 1993, after years of not talking about what happened to her, she decided to speak out, and that's when she sued the Alberta government. Even to this day, I want kids. And it'll bother me till the day I die, because uh, I love kids. When I hold them, a person doesn't realize what's going on inside me when I hold a small child, and knowing that this was, this was robbed from me. You cannot put a price on a child's life. You cannot put a price on what they did to me as a woman, what they took away from me. They owe me a public apology for one thing. This is what I feel. Plus, if I could stop this from happening to one more girl in this world anywhere, that is the greatest thing on earth. Because I know it's probably still happening. And the abuse to start with. And she won, right? She did. Today, in what is being seen as an important test case against the government, Ms. Muir was awarded three-quarters of a million dollars in damage. We reached Ms. Muir at her lawyer's office in Edmonton. The judge ruled that everything that happened to you was wrong. In fact, she went further. She said what they did to you was unlawful, offensive, and outrageous. Yeah, yeah. Is there any consolation in that? Yes, because somebody does admit it finally. Why didn't they want to admit it, Ms. Muir? Well, I don't know. Um, maybe ashamed. You know, you, you got until I brought this public, how many Canadians knew this even ha- existed? Not many. One of the things you wanted from the government, the Alberta government, was an apology. Have you ever gotten an apology? Not a public apology, no. No. And I don't think they ever will do a public apology. She was right. The government did not issue a formal public apology to her. Um, Can you read the statement that then-Premier Ralph Klein gave to the press about it? We extend regrets for the actions of another government in another period of time. Um, Nice, eh? Really heartfelt. That is the most non-apology I've ever heard. Bare minimum. And, you know, on top of that, the province tried to immediately pass Bill 26, which used the Constitution's notwithstanding clause to force the courts to cap sterilization survivor settlements at $150,000 a person. You know, they were trying to get ahead of it to prevent other people, you know, coming Mm -hmm. forward and paying out a big payout. Yeah, not a good look. Terrible. But you know what? They backed down immediately due to public pressure. Uh, people really, really didn't want them to use the Constitution to to do that. Mm-hmm. By 1998, around 500 people settled for $48 million, and eventually the government of Alberta agreed to another $82 million for 247 other survivors of forced sterilization. And many people credit Leilani Muir for taking that first step to get justice. so glad I took it public because now it's going to help thousands of other people. This is the best thing that could have ever happened and help other people come out of their shell because this is what it did for me. I, I've come out of a shell that I was in for so long and I didn't think I'd ever come out of it. I did. It's made me a better person, a very strong person now. Every 
The Secret Life of Canada was hosted and produced by me, Leah Simone Bowen. And me, Phelan Johnson. Sound design and editing by Graham McDonald, with additional producing by Eunice Kim. Our script editor is Yvette Nolan. Research assistance by Andrea Eidinger and CBC Archives. Special thank you to the Eugenics Archives. Roshni Nair is our digital producer, and our executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. RF Narani is the director of CBC Podcasts. You can find us on our socials, and our email is secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. Rate and review us wherever you listen. It really helps other people find the show. Thanks for exploring Canada's hidden history with us. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.